If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the mid-19th century, Richmond, Virginia became a hub of the domestic slave trade in the US. But one institution stands out in the city's story, a place called Lumpkin's Jail. In her new book, The Devil's Half Acre, Kristen Green uncovers the life and legacy of Mary Lumpkin, an enslaved woman whose children were fathered by her enslaver, Robert Lumpkin. Speaking to Emily Briffitt, Kristen explains how Mary fought for her children's freedom and ultimately founded one of the first historically black colleges and universities in the US. So, hi Kristen, it's lovely to be chatting to you today. Thanks for having me, Emily. Today we're going to be looking into the life and legacy of Mary Lumpkin, exploring a bit about the domestic slave trade. So, can you tell me, who was Mary Lumpkin? Mary Lumpkin was an enslaved woman who was enslaved by a slave trader by the name of Robert Lumpkin, and he owned a slave jail in Chaco Bottom in Richmond, Virginia. She was forced to have his children, and she was able to free those children and educate them and free herself. And ultimately, she inherited the jail after Robert Lumpkin died, and she was able to rent that building to a pastor from the north, and it became a school for freemen, um, and it was the cornerstone for a historically black college and university, one of the first in America. It's still open today, known as Virginia Union University. So, what sort of time are we talking about here? Mary was born in Virginia in 1832, well after the transatlantic slave trade had ended here. She was likely the multiracial child of an enslaved woman and her enslaver or some relative of his or an overseer. I couldn't find any records related to her birth, but she was likely purchased away from her family, uh, perhaps alone as a child. And it's likely that she was in Robert Lumpkin's possession by the time she was eight years old. 1840 census records show that he had an enslaved child in his possession at that time. And this was only a few years after the British Empire emancipated enslaved people. So we're going to return to Mary's story. 
But I wanted to also ask you, how did you discover her story and what really inspired you to write about her? Well, I'm a journalist in Richmond, Virginia, and I was assigned to write about a slave burial ground that activists were asking to have uncovered in Chaco Bottom. Um, It was a parking lot at the time that I was writing about it um, in 2011. And while I was doing research for that story, I came upon um, a magazine article in the Smithsonian that described an archaeological dig here in Richmond in 2008. And that archaeological dig was of something called Lumpkin's Jail, which I had never heard of. And it turns out that an archaeological dig was done on the edge of an interstate here to look for the remains of Robert Lumpkin's jail. And the story described not only the jail, but Robert Lumpkin himself and a woman who lived with him and quote unquote acted as his wife, Mary Lumpkin. And I was really taken with this idea of a woman who acted as a wife, an enslaved woman. I knew that wasn't possible because marriage between black and white people was prohibited here. And I didn't know how she could act as a wife if she was enslaved because she had no ability to consent um, to be in a marriage. So I thought a lot about that and about this, you know, snippet of information that she had freed her children and educated her children. And I wanted to know more about that. When you first started researching her story, what did you expect to learn? And was there anything in particular that surprised you about this story? One of the things that surprised me was how little information I could find about her. But I guess that shouldn't have surprised me because enslavers have traditionally, you know, tried to erase the history of enslaved people. Their names were not recorded in a lot of important documents. Um, They were listed as, you know, dash marks in censuses and um, referred to by first names or names that enslavers renamed them. So, I guess I shouldn't have expected to find, you know, an easy trail of information about her, but I just had hoped that I would you know, learn more about where she came from and how she ended up at his jail and what her life was like there. Um, but other things surprised me, and it's how amazing she was, how, you know, how, not just how much resilience she had, but um, her strength and her ability to persuade Robert Lumpkin to, to protect the children she was forced to have with him and to provide a better life for them. It sounds like it was quite challenging in uncovering this story. What sort of sources did you draw upon in your research? Well, as a journalist, I'm familiar with searching public records, and that really came in handy in trying to tell her story, because I really did put it together with tidbits of information that I collected over the years. I visited a Richmond, Virginia courthouse where I looked at court records that were still tied in red tape. (laughs) I went to Massachusetts where her children were sent to school to look at old school records. I looked at old census records that showed that her children moved to safety to Philadelphia. Um, I looked at property records, which show that she had bought a home in her own name in Philadelphia while she was still enslaved in Richmond. I followed the journey of her friend, another enslaved woman, to New Orleans by looking at shipping records. 
I went to the town where she's buried in New Richmond, Ohio, looked at burial records and property records there. And I looked at court records from New Orleans for her friend when she died. And that some of those were her own words that uh, were preserved there. And then the historically black college and university here in Richmond that she played a role in founding had preserved some of her letters. So I really used sources from a lot of different places, but I also tried to build out a family tree for her and for her descendants. And that enabled me to really find a lot of records about them, newspaper clippings. I used slave trade advertisements that Robert Lumpkin had placed to learn more about how he did his business. So I really used a whole variety of records. From these little tidbits, as you say, of information, how much can we really know about Mary's story, Mary's life? I mean, I think this is the way that we have to tell enslaved people's stories now. You know, for so long, their stories haven't been told, particularly the stories of women. So I think this is a new way to approach storytelling about enslaved women where, you know, we we can put together an outline of someone's life. We don't know what her everyday life looked like, but we can see in broad sweeps what she was able to accomplish and and where she was able to live. Um, And these broad sweeps allow us to see her strength and resilience, her ability to survive and and in some cases thrive. Um, We can see the freedom that she secured her children, the education that she secured for them. We can see that she lived, you know, a whole life outside of enslavement. Um, And yes, I, you know, I wish I knew more about her everyday life in Robert Lumpkin's jail. Um, But I was able to kind of pair her story up with other enslaved women who were forced to have the children of slave traders and sort of picture what her life might have looked like by the details I knew about what their lives look like. So I think these are the kind of links that we have to go to try to understand the lives of enslaved women because their stories really haven't been told. I mean, we're, the only stories we know of enslaved women in the American South are for the most part, stories of women who escaped. And many, many enslaved women could not escape because they had children. You know, they children they wouldn't leave. I'd like to return to talking about the female experience of the domestic slave trade in a minute. But first, I think we need to talk about another piece of important context in this story, which is what was Lumpkin's jail? Well, let me first start by telling you about Robert Lumpkin. He was a slave trader who owned and operated a slave jail in Chaco Bottom from at least 1844, um, probably earlier, to 1866. He was a man who came from modest means, um, and his father died when he was young. Robert Lumpkin had younger brothers, at least two of whom also became slave traders. He may have made his way into the profession by first acting as an itinerant salesperson, selling goods from the back of a wagon. And he probably saw slave traders working for big firms, crisscrossing the state of Virginia, um, buying up enslaved people that they could sell for profit. So the position of a slave trader was born out of the slave trade to the Americas in the 17th and 18th centuries. 
After America banned the importation of slaves in 1807, the transatlantic slave trade was quickly replaced by a domestic or downriver slave trade of enslaved people from the upper American South to the lower American South, and roughly a million people were moved prior to the Civil War. This domestic slave trade existed prior to banning the transatlantic slave trade, but it was not widely known. Um, and when the transatlantic slave trade ended, it was able to become more robust. So Robert Lumpkin bought and sold slaves in Virginia. So as a slave trader, he would go to courthouse steps to tavern sales and talk to individual property owners to try to find enslaved people to buy and sell. And these enslaved people needed to be held prior to being sold or after they were sold, before they could be sent by land or by boat and later by train to the Lower South. He must have seen the need for these kind of jails to house people and decided at some point that he was going to pursue this path. And we don't know exactly when he got his start with a slave jail, but he owned the jail that became known as Lumpkin's Jail by 1844. And in that jail, he was known not only to keep enslaved people from people interested in buying enslaved people, but he was also known to punish enslaved people for a fee. So the jail complex that he was known for was said to be one of the most prominent features in Richmond. Um, there was a 41 foot jail at the center of a plot that held well over a hundred enslaved people at a time. And it was surrounded by tall fences and tracking dogs a two-story brick house faced the street, and there was a large boarding house or hotel for visiting enslavers or slave traders that also served as an auction house. And apparently there was also a kitchen or a bar where he could feed those visitors um, and serve them a drink. Farmers came from miles away, even North Carolina, to sell the people they enslaved south to work on sugar or cotton plantations and to buy um, more enslaved people. By 1840, Virginia was responsible for shipping about half of all enslaved people who crossed state lines to the Lower South. Slavery was Virginia's most profitable industry. So there was a great demand, and Richmond became this, the hub of the domestic slave trade in America, the second largest after the port city of New Orleans. And the neighborhood where Robert Lumpkin's jail was located really catered to the slave trade. There were cobblers who could make new shoes for visiting enslavers. There were wagon repair shops for them and blacksmiths. And there were taverns and other places where enslaved people were sold. And then there were slave jails like the one Robert Lumpkin owned, where enslaved people could be held prior to sale, offering hotel of sorts to enslavers to stay for the night and have a meal or a drink. How much do we know about enslaved people's experience of this jail? I mean, we know the experience of being enslaved was horrific. There are a fairly limited number of accounts of experiences from slave jails, but we do have one infamous enslaved person who was held in Lumpkin's jail, who provides lots of the description of the jail, like some of the best descriptions that we have of it. His name was Anthony Burns, and he was a Virginia enslaved man who escaped to Boston and was recaptured. 
um, and underwent a federal trial there and was returned to Virginia and sent to Lumpkin's jail to be punished. And he describes being held in chains. Um, both his hands and his feet remained in chains and he was put into an attic style room. He was deprived of fresh water. He was given rotten meat to eat and he was left to lay in his own filth. I think his, the example of him may have been kind of an extreme example because the whole South was really angry at this man for embarrassing them through this federal trial. But life for other enslaved people, there was really horrible too. I mean, he was known to punish enslaved people for a fee. There were iron rings on the floor of the jail where enslaved people would be chained down and flogged by an overseer. I mean, part of the role of these slave jails was to feed and house enslaved people. And sometimes they were to fatten them for sale. So they were feeding them good food and greasing their faces so that they looked healthy and vibrant. But the food that they were fed tended to be very meager. And the living conditions were quite terrible. They they weren't provided beds and they were... They described, you know, rodents and insects in the jail cells, and sometimes they were really packed with people. It's hard to know exactly what the inside of Robert Lumpkin's jail looked like, but we know that it was a very unpleasant place to be. And many of these people had been separated from their family elsewhere in Virginia and moved there knowing that they were headed for the deep south and would likely never see their family again and were likely to die much sooner because the conditions were so much worse in the lower south. So I think the experience must have been incredibly awful. Was it common for families to be broken up? Half of the 666,000 interstate sales of enslaved people before the Civil War separated families. And this could mean a parent being separated from their children or children being taken from their parents or two enslaved people who had created a family being separated from each other. But it was incredibly common. So returning to talk about Lumpkin's jail, how long was it in operation for? Under Robert Lumpkin, it was in operation from 1844 to 1866. The jail had actually been built in 1830 by a, a different slave trader, um, but he he came to run it at least by 1844. He might have been renting it earlier. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. One day, she met a preacher from the North who had been looking for a building to rent out for a school for free Black men to educate them as preachers, to make them literate. She agreed to rent that building to them, and the school was founded there, and it became the cornerstone of a historically Black college and university. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. So, I want to return to talking about Mary's story again. How did she come to be at Lumpkins Jail? I mean, I don't know exactly how she came to be at Lumpkins Jail, but I believe that he purchased her or somehow acquired her as a young girl, likely by the time she was eight years old. The rape of enslaved women by their enslavers, relatives of their enslavers or overseers, was incredibly common. And if they did not comply, they would be flogged into submission. When Robert acquired Mary, she was a really young girl, and perhaps she decided to give him what he wanted in exchange for freedom for the children she would have and for financial security. At the age of 13, she had her first of five children with him that lived to adulthood. Um, We don't know exactly what her life looked like at the jail, but she likely managed his home and cared for the children, perhaps with help from other enslaved people. She may have also assisted in the running of the slave jail as other enslaved women forced to have the children of slave traders in Richmond did. I think Robert Lumpkin, you know, may have realized that his potential for a white wife was fairly limited because um, he was not a man of means. And he may have looked around Shaco Bottom in, in Richmond and seen other slave traders who were having children with enslaved women and creating something that to outsiders looked like a family. And perhaps he realized this would be an easy path for him to create a family with a woman that did not require her consent and that he wouldn't have to provide for financially in the same way that he would have for a white woman. Um, Enslaved women were forced to have the children of their enslavers more often than is commonly known. Many Americans know only of Sally Hemings, who was forced to have the children of Thomas Jefferson. And we don't know what kind of relationship Robert Lumpkin had with Mary Lumpkin, but we know it can't be described as romantic. Um, Many Americans want to turn these stories into love stories to sanitize the abuse and trauma of slavery. If we can't find out about Mary's relationship with Robert, you've mentioned, as we've been talking about, potentially relationships with other women in similar situations. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about this? I guess we don't know what any of the relationships between the women and their enslavers look like because we don't have anything in their own words describing those relationships. But we know that they moved their children to safety, uh, to freedom. And we know that some of those children passed as white. We know that one particular enslaved woman who was forced to have the children of her enslaver was paid in with cash for some jobs she did for him in the slave jail. She was given limited freedom to move about Richmond. And she was given gifts of gold and diamonds and allowed to purchase beautiful dresses and gifts for her children. That's kind of the extent of what we know that their day-to-day lives look like. But, 
you know, I think that their management of parts of the slave trade business is a really interesting thing to look at. What do you think Mary's story can tell us about the lives of other enslaved women? Well, American law dictated that the condition of children would follow that of the mother. This contradicted English tradition, which said that children's status was the same as the father's. So if slavery relied on the mother's status, then white fathers did not fear paternity claims. So once Mary had children, her focus in Lumpkin's jail and in her life must have been on protecting them. One of her descendants told me that the story she heard from her ancestors was that Mary Lumpkin demanded money from her slave owner partner and said that she would do anything he wanted as long as he would let the children go free. She insisted that to Robert Lumpkin that you can do anything you want to me. You can't hurt these children. These children have to be free. So her children were born enslaved like her, but they were born into a certain amount of privilege in that they were able to stay with their mother. And that may be because she worked so hard to keep them. Um, As I said earlier, the separation of parents from their children was common And half of the interstate sales of enslaved people before the Civil War resulted in the separation of families. She developed friendships with other enslaved women. And I wonder if these relationships may have been for them a tool for survival and a form of resistance. I mean, in some ways, she was very isolated from other enslaved women because of her position in the jail. Once she had Robert Lumpkin's children, she likely lived with him in his home with the children, and she likely had other enslaved people working for her to help care for the children. Um, I know she hired an enslaved young woman to do sewing for her, whether that was for the children's clothes or to help clothe enslaved people that were coming through the slave jail. I'm not sure, but I know that she stayed friends with that young woman for the rest of her life, and their friendship may have empowered her to seek freedom from her enslaver, to ask that their children be educated, and perhaps to endure all that that her life entailed. Was there any concern that Mary's children might be separated from her? Well, enslaved people were used as assets by enslavers who wanted to borrow money. So offering up enslaved people as collateral enabled enslavers to borrow cash and obtain credit. Thomas Jefferson, for example, mortgaged 150 of the people he enslaved to build his home in Virginia, Monticello. And enslaved people at the time were easier to sell than land. So in some Southern states, more than eight in 10 mortgage secured loans utilized enslaved people for collateral, and they were required to be recorded just like mortgages on homes. If Robert Lumpkin had mortgaged Mary Lumpkin or his children, he knew they could be seized for collateral with her without his sign-off. And he worried that he could fall into debt um, or hard financial times and something would happen to separate them. The two oldest children were daughters, and as they approached puberty, Robert Lumpkin and Mary Lumpkin must have teamed up to send them away to be educated. 
the Richmond slave trader Bacon Tate had already moved his children with a free black woman to Salem, Massachusetts. And Tate may have encouraged Robert Lumpkin to send his children there. Bacon Tate may have mentioned that Robert Lumpkin's daughter could pass for white in Massachusetts as his did. They arrived in Massachusetts in the fall of 1856 to a snowy, sleepy hamlet of Ipswich to attend a private girls' school. So they moved to Philadelphia. Could you tell us more about that? While their daughters were in school, Mary Lumpkin goes to Philadelphia, perhaps with Robert Lumpkin, perhaps with someone else, and purchases a house in her own name. When the girls were done with two years of school in Ipswich, which was common at that time, they moved to Philadelphia with their two eldest brothers. The siblings lived in the home of a woman named Harriet Barber, who had been an enslaved woman in Virginia, who had been freed by her enslaver when he died. And Mary Lumpkin would soon join her children in Philadelphia in early 1860 with her youngest son. Philadelphia was a welcoming place in some regards for free black people. And there were many free blacks from Virginia who had landed there in Charleston, South Carolina. It's possible that she knew many other people in the town um, who had come from Richmond or other places. And that her friend Harriet Barber had a network of people that she knew there too that could help Mary Lumpkin find the home to purchase just around the corner from Harriet Barber and could help her to build a life there when they landed there in 1860. In addition to Harriet Barber and the people she may have known in Philadelphia, Mary Lumpkin also knew two formerly enslaved women and their children with slave traders who had also been relocated to Pennsylvania around the same time that she moved there with her family. So they had this network of people who were from this kind of unique circumstance and could share with each other their experiences of going from life in slave jails to living as free people in this city full of black and multiracial people. So from what I understand, Mary was in Philadelphia for the duration of the Civil War. Where was Robert Lumpkin and when were they reunited? My understanding is that Mary Lumpkin and the children were in Philadelphia for the duration of the Civil War. Um, Robert Lumpkin appears to have continued to operate his slave jail during that time. We see him placing advertisements for missing enslaved people escaped slaves who ended up back in his control, um, you know, throughout the civil war. And there's descriptions of him trying to leave Richmond on a train with people he enslaved chained together the day that the Confederates evacuated Richmond. Um, so he was there till the bitter end um, he wasn't able to do that. He wasn't able to evacuate or take people with him. And there's stories of the enslaved people being freed from his jail. After the Civil War, he attempted to rent the slave jail compound to two black men who were going to run a hotel there. But they weren't given the permits he 
that they needed. And it appears that he may have run some sort of hotel out of the slave jail compound after the Civil War, perhaps out of desperation. We do know that Mary Lumpkin returned to Richmond and to him after the Civil War. And I can only assume that they had some sort of deal that they had worked out. And we know she relied on him financially. So she went back to Richmond and he died a year after the Civil War ended in 1866. And she inherited from him the jail and his properties and the home in Philadelphia remained in her name. She stayed in Richmond for a few years, and on the street one day, she met a preacher from the North who had been looking for a building to rent out for a school for free Black men to educate them as preachers, to make them literate. She agreed to rent that building to them, and the school was founded there, and it became the cornerstone of a historically Black college and university known today as Virginia Union Universities. Can you tell us the importance of historically Black colleges and universities? Well, for many years, they were the only place that Black Americans could be educated. They weren't admitted to other universities here in America. And they became institutions that educated Black men and later Black women beyond just becoming preachers. You know, they, they created Black activists, Black academics and thought leaders, and were sites for empowerment and enabling of Black people who had been so mistreated and neglected by white America. The school that Mary Lumpkin founded is still in existence today, and as are dozens of other historically Black colleges and universities, and they continue to play a pivotal role in Black life here in America. What can we say Mary's legacy was then? Well, I mean, I think the the creation of Virginia Union University was a really important legacy. But she also left a legacy with her family and with other enslaved people she encountered. We know that she went to visit Anthony Burns when he was imprisoned um, in Lumpkin's jail, and she extended him kindness by delivering him a hymnal and a Bible because she knew he was literate at a time when, you know, probably no one was showing him any kindness or human contact. You know, she probably had very little power over how Robert Lumpkin treated enslaved people. But in that instance, she sacrificed her own position in the jail, her own safety perhaps, to to interact with him and show him that small kindness. She has a huge legacy with her own family in that she got them to freedom more than five years before all Americans were freed from slavery. So they had a head start on freedom. And I think she you know, shows real endurance and perseverance, um, real strength as a woman. You know, I wish instead of having to show that endurance and resilience that she could have been protected. What's being done now to tell the story of Lumpkin's jail and of Richmond's wide connections to slavery? 
Well, after the jail was demolished in 1888, Mary Lumpkin's story was hidden from view. White men are the ones who have traditionally told these stories. They kept the records, managed the businesses, filed the court records. And as I said earlier, they didn't include enslaved people's names and records, ensuring that they would be difficult, if not impossible, to find. But the uncovering of remnants of the jail in that 2008 archaeological dig is really unique and special. And although the site was covered back up in order to protect it after that dig, it has been preserved. And for years, the city of Richmond has been in discussions about how to memorialize that history. Um, and I think we're the furthest down the road we've been in, in talking, working towards the idea of building a museum there and building a memorial at that site. I would like to see more commitment from my city to telling the story and to acknowledging the role that Richmond and Virginia played in the slave trade and discussing the generational harm that was caused with this in mind, what do you want our listeners to take away from this episode? Mary was one of two million girls and women enslaved in the American South. And I just think your listeners deserve to know more of their stories. And telling Mary Lumpkin's story is, is one way to do that. That was Christine Green. Her book, The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Hold up. 